Friends, may it be true that God would draw our hearts to Him without measure, full and boundless. As we continue this morning our time in the book of Ecclesiastes, I encourage you to open Scripture to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Um, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 12. If, uh, if you are new to our congregation, uh, we are currently going through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, currently on chapter 9. It's a sermon series. Um, throughout this book, and uh, next week we'll continue uh, from verse 13. But this morning we are looking at Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to get a Bible from the pew in front of you, and uh, you may find this passage on page number 557. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who, was, who does not sacrifice. As a good one is, so is a sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for they, their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more measure in all that is done under the sun. Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love and all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Let's go to the Lord and ask for Him to bless us. Oh Lord, because Your Word has the ability to bring life, we stand before You with trembling hearts, asking You to bring life among us to nourish us with your truth, to sanctify us by your word, to mold us into your likeness. Father, we pray that you would bless us with your spirit as we hear these words preached to us. 
We pray this in the name of Christ, for His glory and honor. Amen. Friends, the preacher of Ecclesiastes continues his journey of examining life. And we saw last week how he is examining life in, in the midst of, of trials, in the hard realities of difficulties. And in this text, that aura, that context of difficulties, of trials, continues to stay with us and continues to stay in his examination of life. Uh, this morning, as we look at this passage, I'd like for us to look at a few points that lead us to understand what the preacher of Ecclesiastes notices. And the first thing he notices is, is a good truth. Then he's going to go on to some hard realities. And today, it'll feel like a roller coaster. It'll take us up on the high, high moments of life, but then it'll take us low in the low experiences of life as well. The whole ride is one ride. Let's look at the first encouraging point. The first one is God takes special care of His righteous. God takes special care of His righteous. Look at verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Friends, to, have, to be in the hand of God has several meanings. It could mean to be at His disposal. Right? If you have something in your hand, it means it is in my hand. I can use it. It means to be at His disposal. It could also mean to be under His supervision or to be under His care. I got you in my hand. Don't worry. Now, there's a broad way of understanding God's supervision and God's care um, that includes all creation. There is a sense in which God's care and supervision is over all creation. That's a, it's a very broad and general sense. God cares for all, for the good and for the evil. God gives rain. When He gives rain, He doesn't say, I'm just going to give rain to the good ones and not to the bad ones. God, God's provision and care in His general sense is over all creation, both over the good but also over the wicked, over the evil. But there's a, another sense in which God's care is very narrow, more specific. And that is given towards His people, towards the righteous. And this is what we see here in Ecclesiastes. The preacher of Ecclesiastes notices God's special care over the righteous. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Well, friend, I wonder this morning, if your life belongs to this category of the righteous and the wise. Certainly, I'm not asking you if, if you have a good image of yourself, an image of, of being a righteous or, right, or, or a wise person only in your own eyes. That's not what I'm asking. None of this righteousness is something that we can achieve in a perfect way here in this life, in our own, in our own way. But the question is, are we pursuing a life of righteousness and wisdom. Do these categories of righteousness, the righteous and the wise, do these categories describe us? We may falter along the way, but is our life characterized by a, a life of pursuing God's righteousness and wisdom? If no, if the answer is no, then this verse and this promise is not for you. Here the preacher 
of Ecclesiastes notices a, a specific care, a specific oversight that God gives over those who are righteous and wise, those who pursue a life of righteousness and wisdom. Friend, if that characterizes you this morning, if you are a child of God and God has made you righteous by His, by His grace, if you are pursuing this life and living a life in this righteousness, then one of the things you can be sure of and, and reminded of, encouraged by, is that your, your life is in the hand of God. You may be going through some very difficult seasons of life, but know this, your life is in the hand of God. And it's not just your life, but your deeds, every one of them. Your pain, your suffering, your doubts, your fears, your anxieties, your uncertainties, your service, your actions, every deed. You don't do alone. You and your deeds are in the hands of God. Think of all the tasks that you have to do this week. Every one of them is in the hands of God. Stay-at-home moms, when you go through the difficulty of, of caring for the children in your home all day long, and you feel like you, you, your, your hair is, is coming off because of the craziness that's there with, with taking care of all the things for, for the kids all day long by yourself, no adults around, think of this, your hands, your deeds, your actions are in the hands of God. You, you have a difficult boss at work, or you have a challenging situation with your coworkers or your employees. Realize this. Your hand, your deeds, your actions are in the hands of God. You go through loneliness. You don't know what to do with your life. Or you're, you, you don't have enough time to do everything that you plan to do. Realize this. Your hands, your actions, your life is in the hands of God. You are not alone. There's not one aspect of your life that is done alone if you're righteous and wise in the eyes of God. Now hold on to this truth. Hold on to it as we go through the rest of this passage. This is like a, the high point of the roller coaster. And now with point two, we start going to the valley. Ready? Here's point. Here's the next point that, uh, that, that the, the preacher gives us in verse two. Life brings similar events to all. Life brings similar events to all. Look at verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As a good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. Here, the preacher of Ecclesiastes presents six pairs of, of contrasts. People who are at the opposite end of the spectrum. The righteous, contrasted with the wicked. The good, contrasted with the evil. The clean, and again, think of Old Testament categories here. The clean, contrasted with the unclean. Those who bring sacrifices to God, like in the Old Testament, God required for, for His worshipers to bring them. And those who choose not to. Those who are good and those who live a life of sin. 
those who take oaths and those who don't. Here's a shocking observation. While there is a big difference between these camps, between each of these camps, these contrasts, these people are opposite in these camps. There is no difference what life brings to both. There's no difference. The hard realities of life come to both sides. Even the godly and the righteous, they still encounter sufferings and trials. They too experience similar challenges as those who do not know God. No wonder that in verse 3, the preacher exclaims. Look at verse 3. He's, he's, he's explaining in, de- in, in desperation, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Why aren't the righteous given a better experience in this life? Why aren't the righteous spared suffering or the bad events of life? There's a number of answers the Bible could give us. Think of Job. Think of Job, for instance. God wanted to show Satan that a righteous man such as Job would still worship God, not just in goodness and blessings, but also when those blessings and that goodness is taken away. The the testing of Job, the suffering of Job was, was a test that God showed Satan that Job is willing to worship God in both circumstances. Why are the suffering, why the righteous suffer? Why do we go through challenging times and experiences? Well, the, the answer Job gives is one of the answers. There's a number of other answers that we're giving in the Bible. But here, the preacher of Ecclesiastes simply is perplexed. He doesn't like it. He doesn't, he doesn't like this reality that both experiences, um, that go, both good and evil happen to both the righteous and the unrighteous. How many times God's children feel this way even today? It is hard for us to, to find a legitimate place for suffering, especially in, in, the, in the lives of, of the righteous, and especially when those lives are our lives. I was reminded this week, um, I read an article, uh, a story of a, of a couple, a young couple who, who have, uh, had a, were expecting a baby, and their baby died while still in the womb. And just seeing the, the reaction of how this couple made even of this time of difficulty and sorrow, an act of, of worship towards God. That even in the moments when, when bad things happen to the godly, in those moments, we can still worship God and show our adoration of God and our, our love for God in the midst of trials and difficulties. Think of even more, more difficult than, than Job, the suffering of Job. Think of the suffering of Christ, the truly a truly righteous, a truly perfect one, without no sin, yet sentenced to be crucified and, cro- and died on a cross, and he stood among two robbers. The same sentence of crucifixion happened both to the wicked and to the righteous. You see that in the, in the most clear way in the, in the cross of Christ. The presence of suffering in the lives of the righteous can easily cause in us repulsion, especially when we insist that our lives are in the hands of God. Especially if we remember the first point, everything, our lives, our deeds are in the hands of God, and yet God allows for us to experience suffering. Oh, friend, the first truth we considered earlier, that God takes great care 
of us and of our deeds does not cancel out the second truth that all people experience similar events. When it comes to trials of life, there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians. The rate of the trials is the same. The kind of the trials is the same. That call from the doctor that changes your life can happen to you just as well as it can happen to anyone who's far away from God. It's not just that similar events happen to all, but look at, at what else the preacher says. There is evil in the hearts of all people. Look at verse 3, the second half of verse 3. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Friends, there's no more humbling experience for us than to hear this truth about us. Not just about our circumstances, but about us. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. Wow, to many people today, this kind of verbiage, this, these kind of words sound like um, destroying self, one's self-image or one's self-esteem. Many prefer to think that today, uh, many prefer to think that we are good. Yes, we would say, yes, we, we do some bad things once in a while. We choose to do some evil things once in a while. But, but deep down, people think that we are good. And if we can just educate them enough if we can just put enough good values in them as they grow up, if we can just have good environments for them as they grow up, we can, we can help them live out the good that they are. Friends, this is so opposite of what the Bible presents. The Bible presents to us this truth, this humbling, desperate truth that evil is not simply outside of us. Evil is not simply in our circumstances. Evil is not simply in our environment. Sometimes people think, oh, I, I make bad choices in life because I was in a bad environment. I grew up in a bad situation. I grew up with abusive, in abusive situations or, or bad things happened to me. And therefore, that explains why I make bad choices today. Oh, friends, that is... While there may be some truth that our circumstances influence us, the environment around us influences us, there is truth to that. The Bible says the reason why we do evil is not simply because we have grown up in a bad environment. The reason why we do evil is because the hearts of the, children, the children of man are full of evil. That's why we do evil things. Do you understand that? So yes, it's, it's not about the circumstances, it's not about the environment, it's about our own hearts. And when we, when we look at the cause of why do we act in a bad way, we should be reminded that ultimately the source of evil is actually in our own hearts. Friends, the Bible gives us this unpleasant revelation of ourselves. This is why all of us are subject to the same curses of creation. All creation has been cursed because of the fall of Adam and Eve. All of us are subject to the same weaknesses, same vulnerabilities. We should not be surprised that all experience the same realities. Now, with two realities in particular that the preacher of Ecclesiastes points out um, that we experience not only the evil that is in our own hearts, but there's two more things that the preacher says that we all experience. Death comes to all. 
The one event that is experienced by all people is death. What makes this life challenging is not simply that evil is in our hearts, but also that death is the last station of our lives on earth. Friends, living life between these two realities of evil in our hearts, and all of us have that, and expecting death at the end of our earthly life, and all of us will experience that unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. Living life between these two realities is like living between a rock and a hard place. What hope is there for us? And in this, in this text, in verses 4 through 6, the preacher of Ecclesiastes gives us the, 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 the difficulty of realizing that life and death, when placed next to each other, this, the, 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 the blessing of life that we seem to enjoy and experience will come to an end. And in verses 4 through 6, the preacher describes in a very negative and pessimistic way why death is a bad experience. For those of you who like dogs, I'm going to give you a heads up. This is going to be a bad comparison for you. Um, dogs in ancient times were the animals that you would not want to keep around, like mice or rats. You know, they're, they're just not the animals you like to keep around. Those were dogs in ancient times. Lions, on the other side, were the animals of power, the, the king of, of the animal world. And here in verse 4, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he says, He who is joined with the, with the living, with all the living, has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. As good as a lion would be, and as great as his fame is in the, in the animal world, and as opposite a dog's fame would be, a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's a picture to try to help us understand that really life is better than death, according to the preacher of Ecclesiastes. And then in verse 5 and 6, he, he, gives, he gives a number of de uh, declarations of why. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. There's no knowledge. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy are all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. In other words, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, death brings to an end all our earthly enjoyments. The enjoyment of hope, the enjoyment of knowledge, the enjoyment of a reward for our work, the enjoyment of being known by others, the enjoyment of having a share in the blessings of this earthly life. All of that will be brought to an end by death. The preacher of Ecclesiastes laments that death has such a power to put an end to all our enjoyments of earthly life. Not only is death certain for all, but also life is unpredictable. Look at verses 11 and 12 in our text. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. We assume that the fastest, fastest runners win the race, right? We assume that a football game will be won by the strongest team, right? We assume that riches belong to the intelligent. And in general, it happens that way. But then something unexpected happens. Something unpredicted happens. The fast 
the fastest runner trips up. And instead of being first place, he ends up being towards the end or the very last. Something, a bad pass happens in a football game, and, and the, 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 the team was supposed to win, they end up losing. Life is unpredictable. And verse 12 makes it so clear. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a, net, in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. The unplanned glitch happens. Things don't work out the way we plan. We, we hope we have a job, and we start it, and we hope it go well, but it doesn't. With evil in our hearts, with death as our destiny, and with unpredictable things coming up to us when we least expect them, wow, life is pretty hard. Who would want to live such a life? This is the valley. This is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes encounters. I wonder if there's anyone among us here this morning who is in that spot. There's just no more purpose to live life for. Well, friends, I want you to see the middle of this text. We looked at the first three verses, and then we looked at the last verses that we read. And sandwiched in between, there's, there's a good news. And here's the good news. A command to live joyfully. Pursue joy. Pursue joy. Verses 7 through 10 is probably the most compelling and most clear and the most deliberate commands in all of Ecclesiastes of commanding us to pursue joy. As a matter of fact, if up to this point uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author would suggest, would, would encourage us to live a life of joy, here he commands us to live joyfully. There's five commands in this passage that you, you should see verse, verse 7 through 10. Go, go, drink. I mean, so go, eat, drink, let your garments be, enjoy life. Whatever your, your hand finds, do, and do it with might. Oh, friends, I want you to realize that the preacher of Ecclesiastes, after painting this gloomy and dark picture of life, in the midst of it, as if that's not happening, he says, I want you to be very deliberate in living a life of joy, of pursuing joy, living joyfully. How? On what basis? Here's, here's how to pursue this life of joy. There's going to be four sub-points to this, to this major point. In this passage... Joy seems to be closely connected with God's approval. Look at verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Why? For God has already approved what you do. Now this verse presents us with a great dilemma. Earlier in verse 3, we read that the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. How is it possible for the preacher of Ecclesiastes to say now that God has already approved us? Based on what? The preacher of Ecclesiastes does not explain this mystery. For clarity on this mystery, we have to wait until the New Testament. When Even in the Old Testament, however, we see that God declares that He justifies the unrighteous by faith. We see that in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. 
God's approval of, of us is given not because of us, because of what we have done. God's approval of us is given because of us believing His Word and believing His promises. Oh, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the greatest news that you could ever hear, that God justifies and approves the guilty by faith and faith alone. From the very beginning, man was created perfect in God's image and likeness. And yet God, through Adam and Eve, I mean, man, through Adam and Eve, have disobeyed God, uh, disobeyed God and His commandments, have rebelled against Him. And because of that, we have triggered God's punishment, God's righteous indignation, God's wrath against sin and against our rebellion. But God in His mercy and grace, He still loves us. He still wanted to, create, to, to restore His creation, so He provided His Son, Jesus, who lived a perfect, unsinful life, free of sin, and yet died a death that sin deserved. He died in our place, crucified, so that through Him, all of those, all among us, who put their faith and trust in Him, who repent of sin and, and turn to Christ, may be actually granted God's righteousness, may be declared righteous before God, may, may find God's approval in His sight. That's why, dear friends, everything we do, everything we do together as, as Christians is in the name of Jesus. Our worship, our prayers are in the name of Jesus. Why? Because we realize without Christ, none of us would be approved in the sight of God. Our worship would not be pleasing to God unless it was in, in spirit and truth, the truth about Jesus. That's why everything we do as Christians is through Christ. Oh, friend, if, if you don't know this approval that God grants us through Jesus, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the, of the service. Christians are people who realize that our approval before God is only granted to us because of Christ. Oh, friend, in light of that approval, in light of the approval that God gives us, not on our own merit, but look at just the way even Ecclesiastes describes it. For you have already been approved by God. You, verse 7 says, for God has already approved what you do. Oh, friend, in light of that, we can live joyfully. In light of that, we can live a life of joy. And, and notice that this joy permeates everything, including eating and drinking. The most, we would say, basic aspects of life, the most menial aspects of life, such as eating and drinking, is to be done with joy. That's why, friends, I, as, as, as I meditated through this week through, through this passage, I realized when I, when I go by and pick up that fast food, meal and I eat it while I'm driving. I know I'm not supposed to do that. Um, but when, when you do that um, and you're just eating, you're just eating just to, 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 to fulfill your hunger, but you're not actually enjoying eating. You're not actually enjoying the, the basic provision that God gives of, of food or drink. When we just live life and we're, there's no more joy in us, nothing, not even when we eat a meal. Oh, friend, we sin against the Lord. We fail to present what God wants us to be like. God wants us to, to, be, to live a life of joy even in the act of eating your breakfast, your cereal, your oatmeal that you eat for losing weight. Even that, eat it with joy, has no taste, I know. Eat it with joy. Enjoy the food that God gives you. Friends, it's not about, it's not about the food. It's about the joy. You get that. Enjoy the most menial things of life. 
Joy permeates everything. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we read about the early believers day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, hospitality in their homes. They received their food, how? With glad and generous hearts. Oh, friends, if our, if our, our meal sharing would be characterized by this visible, by this clear joy in our, in, our own, um, in our own lives together. Christians rejoice even in the act of eating together. Here's the second thing we know about this joy and how this joy is. It's supposed to be visible. This joy, the first one is it's connected to the approval of God. It's connected to being approved by God. It's, it's visible joy. Look at verse 9. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White clothes and oil on your head were signs of freshness and joy. The opposite in the Old Testament were the, the wearing of sackcloth and ashes. Do you know what that represented? It represented mourning. When people were called to mourn and weep before the Lord, they were called to put on sackcloth and ashes. Here we see the opposite. Put on white garments. Put on oil over your head. Make your joy visible. That's why even Jesus, when, when he encouraged people in, the, in their fast to put oil on their face, don't go around showing that you're miserable. Put, put oil on your face. Make your, make your joy to be visible, even when you're fasting, said Jesus. The bottom line is let this joy come through. Let it come out of your, of your heart. The third characteristic about this joy is that it's relational. It's not a selfish joy. It's not just an individualistic joy, a merely a joy just for you and you alone. Look at verse 10. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now let me speak here to the married men. Are you enjoying life with your wife? They're married couples, and by the way, this goes back the same way with women, wives. Last week, someone was disappointed that I only addressed the men and not the women. Um, it goes both ways. Um, women, are you enjoying life with your husband? There are couples for whom married life has become bored. There are couples for whom, and I'll, here's, here's the men. I'm going to go back to the men. Uh, men, we, we find our, our man cave. I hear, do you know that phrase? Man cave, when you just go and escape life and you just go in your cave and, and try to have some sanity. I don't know what that is. I've never seen the man caves. I just hear it. It's, in, it's a Texas thing. I've never heard him until I, met, I moved to Texas, so it must be only a Texas thing. But the phenomenon that, that is universal is sometimes we are so either frustrated with, with life or with with family life, or our own spouses, or that, that we just need some, we just need to go away or do whatever, um, or, or we got to a point in our own marriages where it's not fun anymore just to, to be with your, with your spouse, that somehow you need to, to do something different or go out and, and just being together with your spouse is no longer joyful. Oh, friend, if you have a sense of joy that is individualistic, if you have a sense of joy that is just you, and selfish, you selfish, and that joy is not overflowing 
and, and, and going over and affecting those around you and including them in, in, in that joy, right? you're, you're having a, a sinful kind of joy, if you know what I mean. Here, the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes encourages, I'm speaking to right now for, for those who are married, if you're single, you might be longing for this kind of joy. Friend, pray that in God's timing, the Lord will give that to you in His ways. This is primarily for, for those who are married and are no longer finding joy in their marriage. For those of you who are single, you might be like, really, is that possible? Yes, it is possible. Sinfully, it is possible. Just as it is possible sinfully to be unhappy in singleness. Sinfully, sinfully it's possible. But friends, realize this, is, this passage is, is speaking about a joy that is relational, a joy that affects others, and it starts even in, in our marriages. And the fourth thing, whatever you do, or let me say this, the whatever you do as, as couples, pursue a life of joy in your marriage, in your, in your family, an, an overflow of that joy that affects the other. That is the kind of joy we're called to have. A fourth characteristic of this joy is that this joy is energetic. Whatever you find, look at verse, um, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In other words, be fully engaged in this life. Some people don't live their fullest unless they realize or they have their dream situation come true. Unless their dream circumstances are, are, are there, they can't really enjoy, they can't really love life and enjoy and give themselves to the tasks of life unless they have everything set up just the way they want it. Oh, friend, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds, whatever's near already, whatever's next to you already, whatever is there, don't just wait to be joyful for when things in the future will happen or things that are still far away from you will happen. In the moment, in the here and now, whatever's around you, do and do it with full energy. If God has given you certain abilities, use them well. Realize that once you're placed in the grave, you can no longer do anything that God has given you to do now. Nothing. Your abilities, your skills, the things that you are able to do now, don't wait for tomorrow. Do them now and enjoy them now. Because once you're placed in the grave, it is done. You're teaching Sunday school or discipling another believer. Do it. Do it with your full energy. Once you are in the grave, you can do no more discipling. You can do no more teaching. If you're trying to, to, to raise up your children, do it now. Do it well. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know what will happen to you or you don't know what will happen to your children. Whatever you do, realize that if God, if the unexpected or the unpredictable happens to you, everything that you can do now will no longer be done. So live life joyfully. And with that joy, do it with full energy, whatever the Lord is giving you to do right now. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a parable of talents, a master giving his three servants talents to put them to use. Two of them put them to use. The third one doesn't waste it. He just doesn't use it. The third one puts it, puts it in the ground so nobody will steal it, so he can give it back to his master, but he's not using it. Well, the first two servants, when the master comes back, the master tells him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful 
over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Oh, friends, realize whatever the Lord has given you and us together, whatever the Lord has given us, whether that's much or little, we're called to put it to use and do it with energy and with confidence. Live a life of joy. I want to wrap up this, this sermon, this command of, of living with joy in light of the whole story of the gospel. The charge to enjoy life fully was a, a charge given first time in paradise to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was, were supposed to have dominion over the, over, over the garden, to work it, and to, to, to enjoy every part of it, to enjoy it by eating it and to enjoy by working it. But that charge to live life with joy was interrupted by the fall. Fall into sin. Life, living life, working life, enjoying life, even marriage life. The charge to, to do all that became now a burden and became affected with toil, with strife, in dominance for marriage, with certainty of death. And when God sought to restore His people, God promised them to give them a land, and the land He promised them to give would be a land that would be filled with milk and honey, something they could eat and something they could drink, so they would enjoy what God would give them. So God brought them in their promised land, but they still rebelled against God. And therefore, God brought them more punishment and even death. God took them out of the land to, to realize that their rebellion triggered the wrath of God, the punishment of God. And yet, in Isaiah, God promised that even though the people of God in the Old Testament is still blew it, God promised and is, is faithful to His promise to bring restoration and God said in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into be to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Friends, God promised to create a new creation where his people will enjoy what God creates. And that joy will be everlasting. Jesus, when he came on earth, came to begin that plan of redemption and to execute it. At one point, Jesus tells his disciples right before he's crucified, he says, he gives them commands to, to follow him, that, that the disciples will know that they, fought, they love Jesus by, by obeying the commands of Jesus. And then Jesus says in, in chapter 15 of John 11, he says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Even with the prospect of the death of Jesus, Jesus says, I'm saying these to you so that you may be full of joy. Later, we find out that the, the death of Jesus undoes the very curse of death so that the people of God, the people who put their trust in Christ, the people who at first were caught in between a, in a rock and a hard place, between evil in their hearts 
death as their, as their sentence of life and the unpredictable of life, these people can look up to Jesus and realize, if I have Jesus, I have all I need for joy and life in this earthly life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, do it all. Do even that for the glory of God. And do even that with joy in your heart. Oh, friend, I hope you realize that all we have is Christ. He turns our, our scenarios of being caught between a rock and a hard place. He turns our evil. He turns our, our death sentence. He turns the unpredictables of life. He makes us, turns us around to the point where we're able to live with joy in the midst of all that. Oh, how I pray that the people of God would be characterized, us, we would be characterized by this unexplainable joyfulness. Even when life goes hard, even when this world could give us so many reasons to, to complain, that we would be the people who would have joy. Why? Because we have Jesus. And because of Him, everything can be turned into a journey of joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who loves to see your people full of joy. Even in a life whose limits are evil. Even in a life that is filled with the unpredictable, with the uncertain, with the unpleasant. Gracious God, we pray that our joy would be a joy that is found in you and you alone and that, that this joy would permeate everything we do in this life. That this joy would touch everything and everyone we come in contact with. May this joy be a compelling joy. May, be, may it be a, a contagious joy. May it be a, a joy that is visible, a joy that intrigues others. Oh, Father, we pray that your people gathered in this place would be a community that radiates your joy. Enable us to live this joy out in our daily lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.